All right, if you would go ahead and have a seat. And if you want to, feel free to grab a, grab a handout at your table. That's on, turn me down just a bit. For those of you that might be a first-time guest with us, with us this morning, thanks for being here. We're thrilled you're here. You kind of come into a series that we launched last week um, entitled Holy Matrimony. Um, it's a little bit different setup than what we normally have. Um, we're kind of approaching this more like a workshop, more like a conference, a seminar, than we are a typical church type of gathering with chairs and rows and that kind of thing. And so we're kind of approaching it this way. So thanks for being a part of this, um, and I'm looking forward to what God's going to teach us this morning. Last week, and, and we'll do a little bit of review here this morning from last week, but we didn't get to the end um, of part one or week one, so this week is going to kind of be a wrap-up of that. Um, but to, I want to share kind of a lay a foundation for, for those of you that maybe are here and you're single or you're unmarried and you think, oh great, a marriage series, um, this doesn't apply to me, I disagree. I think this applies to you in an incredible way because as I shared last week, you're really in the best position because you're in the position where you can go into a marriage, next marriage, whatever it might be for you, having a really strong foundation as to what marriage was and, was and is originally intended to be and what it's to look like. Um, but also too, and I'll say this, I think we have to be careful that I don't want to, if you're unmarried or single here this morning, to feel like you can't live a fulfilled life unless you're married. That's a absolutely a, a lie. Okay, Jesus lived the most perfect human life, fulfilled life. The Apostle Paul did. Our identity is not wrapped up in being married or marriage. Our identity is found and received in the person of Jesus Christ and who he, who he says we are. So if marriage is not in your future, it's okay. All right, it's, it's totally okay because your fulfillment and satisfaction in life is ultimately found in Jesus and not in your marriage partner, and not in being married. All right, so you need, I want to say that up front. So there's a lot of things here that apply to all of us. Um, and to maybe you're, you're here and you're younger, and you're like, oh, great. I'm, you know, maybe you're in high school, junior high, whatever. You're like, we're doing a marriage series. This doesn't apply to me. Again, you're wrong. All right, the, you're wrong, because this absolutely applies to you. There's some foundational principles that you need to understand what God has to say about marriage. And I'm hoping today, as we look at some things, you'll understand why we believe some of the things that we believe. So I'm not, you know, there's, there's some critical truths that we believe as the church that Jesus has taught. And my hope today is to not just say what those are, but to give us a biblical framework of why we believe those things that Jesus says about, the, about marriage and about who we are as people, His people. Um, if you would, just join me in prayer this morning, really sense that I need the Spirit of God more this morning as we approach some, some of what we're going to share this morning. God, thank you for this time. I, I ask that um, you would fulfill your promise, and that is that your spirit would speak through me this morning. Um, I understand that it's not by my might, not by my power, but by your spirit. So I ask that your Holy Spirit who is in me would um, flow through me in my conversation and in, our, in my talk to today, but also in our conversations around the table. This morning, I thank you. Father, I thank you, Father, for, for marriage. I thank you for what it is. I thank you for creating it. And I pray now, Lord, that whatever emotions bubble up um, within each person here as a result of marriage and just maybe it's past failed marriages or current struggling marriages or whatever it might be, God, I just pray that your spirit would just give a sense of comfort this morning. Fill those voids um, in the way that only you can fill it. 
And so we look forward to our time. Thank you for meeting with us this morning, Father. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Over the 20, well, over 20 years of ministry now, which is hard to believe, full-time ministry, I've done a good, uh, good bit of counseling, um, pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling in, in my time. And I remember counseling a young couple, and usually in the first session, uh, we'll talk about, share a little bit of your history, your background, share a little bit about your parents and their marriages and, and that kind of thing and, and what you observed. And I remember counseling this pre-married couple um, and asking them that question, to asking them to describe the marriages of their parents. And each one of them said this. They said, well, when we look at the marriages, she, you know, the bride-to-be said, when I look at the marriages or the marriage of my parents, I know what I don't want my marriage to look like. And then when he shared, he said the exact same thing. He said, when I look at the marriage of my parents, he said the same thing. He said, you know what? She's right. She's I, I look at the, parent, or the marriages of my parents and people that I grew up under, and he said, I, I know what I don't want it to look like. Here's what I want you to do. I want to have some discussion around your table. And I want you to share in three words. I want you to describe in three words the marriages, looking back as a kid, right? Um, and I know some of you are with family right now, so this could be incredibly awkward, okay? And so you can plead the fifth if you so desire, all right? <laughs> so, but maybe this will be a healing time as well, I don't know, or a revealing time in other ways. Um, all right, so, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to use in three words, and you don't have to give any explanation, and if you really value family unity, you're going to probably... I'll just leave it there, okay? So three words I want you to describe the marriages that you grew up under. How would you describe in three words the marriages that you grew up under? And if you don't want to talk about the marriages at the table, reference I'm talking about neighbors down the street or whatever. Okay, so go ahead. Three words describe the marriages that you grew up under. You know, I'm, I'm not sure maybe what three words you used to describe um, the marriages that you grew up under or have observed over the years, but maybe for some of you this morning, your response is similar to the response of that couple where it says, you know, when you look at the marriages of other, be our parents, the marriages of, that we look at, that we see of our friends, um, maybe you have older brothers and sisters that are married, when you look at their marriages, you know, th- when I look at those, we, we know what we don't want it to look like. So the next question is, so what is it supposed to look like, right? What is marriage? And so that's kind of where we're landing. And, and we want to look at that, what is marriage? And, and we began by looking at Jesus' teaching um, in Matthew chapter 19. So if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, go there, Bible app on your phone, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to get to that passage in a moment. But as you're turning there, I just want to review a little bit of some of the wrong assumptions and right realities that we looked at last week. And it's on the front of the, of the handout um, at your table, but I just kind of want to review these quickly. I won't go through each assumption, but more like, really, what do those assumptions reveal to us about what our culture thinks about marriage? One of the uh, things that the assumptions reveal is that people today don't trust marriage. They don't trust it. Uh, half of all couples who get married today um, live together before they get married, so there's a sense of, I'm not sure I want to jump into that. I look at the marriage of my parents, and many um, children come from divorced homes, and so why would I do something, why would I jump into something that I saw fail? So they don't trust 
marriage. So they choose not to get married. It's one thing that we see in our, in our culture today. Something else that these assumptions and realities reveal is that we're looking to marriage. Many people are looking to marriage or looking to a marriage partner for their approval or to find their identity or to find their happiness. And so they get married because they think marriage will ultimately give me happiness. And so then when their spouse stops making them happy, I'm no longer happy, so I'm out. Because I define marriage as the means of making me happy. So many people are looking to a marriage partner, to a spouse, to marriage itself, to ending all their problems or to making them happy. Another uh, reality and that's revealed from these assumptions is that we're trying to find our identity, as Scripture says, in the created rather than in the Creator. We're looking to someone or something that was created to satisfy that longing in our hearts, the Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 1. Tim Keller says this, he says, In our society, we are too pessimistic about the possibility of monogamy because we're too idealistic about what we want in a marriage partner. So we have this image of this perfect marriage partner, this soulmate, right? That we, we believe they're out there. And then what happens is we get married to our soulmate, and our soulmate becomes our sin mate. <laughs> and we're like, whoa, I had no clue they were like this. They grind their teeth at night. They snore. They do all this stuff. We're like, I am not, ha-, you know, and all these realities. But we have this perfect picture of what a spouse should look like. And then all this comes crashing down because now we're no longer happy and all that happens because we have a flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage, he says. And that flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage, the Bible tells us, is not marriage's fault. The problems in marriage is not the fault of marriage. The problem in marriage is the fault of those who get married because the Bible says that everyone who gets married is a sinner. The problem is the problem of the heart. The problem is the problem of sin. And so you have this sinner coming together with this sinner. You have a whole bunch of multiplied sin coming into one relationship. And then that it's just bound to get messy. It's bound to have pain. And, and so we have a flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage because we're looking for marriage to solve something that marriage was never created to solve. And so we blame marriage rather than looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, I'm I, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm bringing this into my marriage. So what's the solution? And we looked at this last week briefly. If the, if the solution, if the failure of marriage is the problem of sin, the problem of heart, then the solution to marriage is to have a power that can free us from our sin and selfishness into marriage. So the solution to the problem in marriage is the gospel. Because only Jesus is the one that's strong enough to conquer our sin and who conquered our sin and only Jesus is the one that through his spirit empowers us to deny ourselves and our selfishness in the marriage relationship. So the solution to the marriage failure is the gospel, is Jesus Christ. And so we look to him because not only is Jesus powerful enough through his spirit, the resurrection power, Paul says in Ephesians 1, each of us possesses as a child of Christ, not only is Jesus through his through His Spirit, powerful enough to conquer our sin, to allow us to deny ourselves, to unselfishly love someone else, but He's also the same person that tells us what marriage is supposed to look like. So not only is Jesus and the gospel and His forgiveness that He's given to us what we need to solve 
the problem in marriage, but he's also the same person that tells us what marriage is supposed to look like. And so in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, that chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, that's where we started last week, and I'll just read it to us again and follow along if you'd like. Um, Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and I'll back up in verse chapter 18, he's just taught on forgiveness, which I think is appropriate right before he talks about marriage, because if you're going to have a a marriage that's going to function well, it's going to involve a ton of forgiveness, a ton. And so Jesus has just taught on forgiveness, and now he's questioned by the Pharisees. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus, what's he do? He takes him upstream. He says, they're looking, you're looking at how can I get out of this thing. Jesus says, whoa, 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 you need to go upstream, and you need to understand the original purpose for marriage. And he says, haven't you read, and they would have as a good Pharisee knowing the law. He said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, that talks about purpose, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So they're hearing all this, and they're going, why then, they asked, did, Jesus, did Moses command, Moses never command, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They had confused something from Scripture, and they, they misinterpreted it. Because look what Jesus' response in verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted, permitted, he allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard because of sin. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. I love the response of the disciples here. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. In essence, they're going, wow, Jesus completely just raised the bar of marriage. And they're like, if you can't get out of this thing, if if this thing is so strong, then We need to really seriously consider this whole marriage and who we're getting married to. And Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. We'll look at that in a moment. The one who can accept this should accept it. So last week, just here's a situation. The Pharisees come to Jesus and one school of thought amongst the Pharisees was that um, you could get divorced for any and every reason. If she burnt the toast, gained weight, you're out, and you had complete legal right to be out, okay? No fault, you know, irreconcilable differences, whatever, you you know, whatever your reason is, you can get out. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought amongst the Pharisees was the only way you could divorce your wife was if there was marital unfaithfulness in the relationship. I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't even address that. And since he, I mean, later he does, but he goes upstream. He's like, wait, wait, wait. To understand how marriage is supposed to function best, you need to understand how I created it. And it's interesting that the very person that the Pharisees are talking to is the one who invented marriage. They're talking to the creator of marriage. And so this guy knows how it's supposed to function best. And so he takes them upstream, he's going to raise the bar of marriage, and he begins by answering the question, where does marriage come from? We looked at that, that's where we um, ended last week. Where does marriage come from? And he says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator 
made them male and female. And then verse 5, referencing the Creator. And the Creator said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And then verse 6, so they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God, the Creator, has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus is very clear. He answers the question, where's marriage come from? It doesn't come from culture. It comes from Him, the Creator. Marriage originated from the Creator, not culture. So if God created marriage, then God is the one who knows how marriage is to function best. So we go to Him, Jesus, to unravel and to determine how is marriage supposed to function best. And so Jesus continues His teaching on marriage. He says, haven't you read, He replied, verse 4, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Another observation from Jesus' teaching in marriage is that marriage is the union of male and female, one woman with one man. How do we know that? Jesus says it right here. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning he made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and be united to his wife, that's marriage language, and the two will become one one flesh. Now, you need to understand that what we have in marriage is you have two very different becoming one, all right? So, I'm going to kind of use a math equation uh, to help us understand this, okay? A plus B equals C. In marriage, you have two very different becoming one. You have a male, very different from a female. I'm, I'm hoping I don't need to go any further than that. I think we're, we can understand that anatomically, physiologically, emotionally. We're different, okay? So you have male plus female coming together to make life, to make something new. That's very, very important that you understand that when it comes to God's purposes for having marriage be male and female, okay? Just... I'll show you why, what Jesus has to say. If you can keep your finger in Matthew chapter 19, do so. But head to Genesis chapter 1 because, and 2 because that's where Jesus quotes from. So marriage is intended for the union of male and female. One man, one woman. Why? What's God's reasons? If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following... And this is what Jesus is, he, he's, this is the foundation. The Pharisees would have understand this, the law. It says, then God said, verse 26 of, of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 27, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So male possesses the image of God, female possesses the image of God, then God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground, all right, and then verse 31, so he's created male and female, he gives them commands, he says, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, that means make more image bearers, make new life continue to populate, to make more image bearers, bearers, bearers of who I am. Not bearers as in, okay, but bearer, okay, um, stamp of God. 
All right, God saw, I'm sure that, no, anyway, God saw that he had made, and it was very good. All right, so he, he makes male and female, and he makes marriage, and he says it's all good. Sin hasn't come into the world yet. All right, and part of making them male and female, the purpose is so that they can make new life. So A plus B can come together, and they can form C to be fruitful and multiply. The original mission of marriage included being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with more image bearers of God. And the only way that can be accomplished to fulfill God's original intent is through a male and a female. All right? So, and the sexual relationship is in the context of marriage. And if you look at Genesis chapter 2, all right, Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So in the context, the sexual relationship is to happen within the context of marriage, according to what um, God is saying here in Genesis 2 and, and Jesus is quoting. So here you have in the original intention of marriage, God's purpose of marriage, it says, God says here, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers of me. How's that going to happen? It's got to happen through a male and a female to accomplish God's purpose. Okay? But there's something much more at stake here when it comes to marriage being male and female. And I want you to go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Because Ephesians tells us that before the creation of the world, God had the gospel. God had a plan to rescue us from our sin. He had that plan in mind when he created marriage. He knew that he was going to send his son as the redeemer to earth to rescue us from our sins. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, because there's so much more that marriage displays than I think what we, what we have come to, to talk about or understand. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing and he says this, Therefore, verse 11, chapter 2 of Ephesians, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, referencing the Jews, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. He's talking to the Gentiles, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. Verse 14. He's talking about through Christ, Jew, God through Christ, has brought the Jew and the Gentile together to make something new. To make the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. All right, and if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, very familiar passage on marriage. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul talks about husbands and wives, verses 22 um, and following. And then he, ta- he really gives the, the core of why he's saying what he's saying in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So when God creates marriage, what he's doing is he... One of his primary intentions of marriage was for the marriage covenant to be a display of the gospel. 
to be a display of Him and His unbreakable covenant love that's available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what you have in marriage, you have male plus female makes new life. Jew plus Gentile through the person of Christ, through faith in Christ, He makes something new called the church. And then individually, what's He do? Jesus plus sinner, sinful you and me, become new creation. So that's the pattern. That's so in the gospel, what you have is you have a beautiful, or in marriage, you have a beautiful display of God's covenant, unbreakable love, and how through Christ, He makes you new. And Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but it's Christ in me. You become one with Christ. And Christ plus sinners through Christ, faith in Christ, become one body. You have two very different becoming one. And so it has to be male and female. When it's not, it breaks down the very picture that God created marriage to present. And I know that's hard, especially in our culture today, but there's so much more at stake than just a person's happiness. It's the gospel that's at stake here. It's the, it's the forgiveness, the unbreakable forgiveness and love that's available to people through Jesus Christ. And it's always two very different coming together to become one. And so marriage must be man and woman to reflect the gospel that God has provided for us in Christ and the forgiveness that's available to us. So then why do people choose to marry or to be in same-sex relationships? There's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of reasons. But at the core, Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1 verse 25, I encourage you to turn there if you can. And you can read verses 8, starting with verse 18 to the end of the chapter, but I'm just going to look at verse 25. Therefore, God, or in verse 25, Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. What happens is, unfortunately, we begin to believe a lie. And we begin to exchange what we think might be best. And we, be, we begin to think, well, I'm not, God hasn't provided this. I don't have this relationship the way God intended. So. And he wants me to be happy, so I'm going to pursue this kind of relationship. And we exchange the truth of God, God for a lie. We begin to worship and put our approval in something that he created, another person, rather than the, in the creator. And the scriptures are clear. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, as it relates to same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, homosexuality, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. But I, and I hope when I, as we talk about this, I'm, you're not just saying, well, it's just wrong. Why is it wrong? You need to understand what, why it needs to be male and female because the gospel and a picture of the gospel, that's what marriage, the covenant, is supposed to express and display. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But, contrast, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, God is clear 
through Apostle Paul's letter and through Scripture, and especially when we understand marriage is a beautiful display of God's covenant love to us, two different becoming one, that homosexuality and same-sex marriage and relationships are, are sinful. They distort his image of what he originally intended marriage to be and to present. They can't fulfill the purposes of procreation and proclamation of the gospel. They don't. But let me say this, before we throw stones, look at that list again. Look at it. You're somewhere in that list. Every person in this room. You ever get greedy? You ever slander someone? Talk about them behind their back? Make something an idol in your life? We're all in that list, okay? We're all in that list somewhere. And if you're here this morning and maybe you would consider yourself gay or you struggle with same-sex attraction, I, I, I want to say something specifically to those of you who may be in that, be feeling that and, and struggling with that and experiencing that. On behalf of the church, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for how we have somehow elevated this amongst all the other sins? Not saying it isn't sin, it is sin. But would you forgive us for how we've treated you? Forgive us for being unwelcoming to you? Listen, disagreement does not equal not loving. We can disagree, but does, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I don't love you. Okay, I'm going to switch gears use an illustration here from sports, okay, to help you understand that. I'm a huge Cleveland Browns fan. I disagree with them all the time and the decisions they make all the time. But I will always love the Cleveland Browns, always. There's something there that just, okay, love them. And there's all kinds, I disagree with my kids and some of the choices they make. Right? But I will always love them. Always. And so even though I disagree with the choices that you're making, and I hope as a church we will come alongside and continue to express love to you through Jesus Christ. And our hope for you and our desire for you is the same for every person in this room that's struggling with something, struggling with idolatry, struggling with greed, struggling with pornography, struggling with whatever where we're worshiping something other than God. Our hope and desire is that for you as it is with every person in this room, that you would not remain captive to that sin or you would not look to that sin or the expression of that sin to validate who you are, but that you would experience freedom through the person and presence and power of Jesus Christ. That's our hope for you. That's our, my hope for everyone in this room because there is a better life, there's a better identity, there's a better love, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is my hope, whether you're here struggling with same-sex attraction, or you're looking at porn, or you struggle with greed and selfishness, whatever it might be. There is something better, and His name is Jesus. And His name is Jesus, and He is powerful enough to free each of us from our sins. That's why He went to the cross. And in that being said, it's clear from what Jesus is saying and what marriage is to picture that marriage functions best, it accomplishes its intended purposes, and is experienced in its most beautiful form when marriage is between male 
and female. And to change or substitute anything other than what God has declared and the way it is to function is to exchange a truth for a lie. But that does not give us credence to be unloving, church. If anything, we should continue to be more than loving, expressing the love of Christ. Because all of us need Jesus. Each and every person in this room needs Jesus, regardless of the sins of my own heart and the sins that you're dealing with. That's the reality. So what is marriage? Marriage is intended, as Jesus teaches, to be the union of male and female, one man with one woman. He continues to go on in Matthew chapter 19. And he says that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Well, how do we know that? Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And the word joined there that God, that Jesus uses is, is a kind of a farming picture of where he brings two oxen yoked together for a, like as one team. All right, it's not two individuals trying to pursue their own dreams at the expense of the other. No, who's, where'd they get the yoke from? The farmer, right? So here you have God who's bringing them together for a specific purpose. They're coming together as one to accomplish His purposes, to accomplish His mission. And a lot of times the problems in marriage happen because He's pursuing His thing, she's pursuing her thing, and God's yoked you together, and good night, that's painful, or you're heading toward Jesus, or, and, you know, and, and the ladies, the wife's heading toward Jesus, and he's just sitting down, and he's grazing, not into Jesus. I mean, it just, it just makes it hard. It's a struggle. And it's a covenant because he's saying, I've joined you together. Now, covenants are binding. They're permanent. Um, regardless of the choices of those in the covenant, God's the writer of the marriage covenant because Jesus says what God has joined together, let man not separate. And our culture sees marriage as a contract. You have the whole prenup, right? What's that? That in and of itself tells us that our culture sees it as a contract. Well, just in the event that you break your end of the bargain, I'm out. We need to make sure, okay, our culture sees marriage as a contract, whereas God sees marriage as a covenant. And God is the writer of the covenant. He's the witness of the covenant. And when I do marriages, uh, I mean, officiate marriages, you know, you get a marriage license and you have people sign it and they, uh, the witnesses that are there, Who's signing your marriage? Jesus is the one that's signing it. He's the creator of the marriage covenant. Malachi 2.14, we won't look at it, but it says, The Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. So not only is God the writer of the marriage covenant, He's the witnesses there observing the covenant. Proverbs 2.16 and 17 talk about how, um, I'll just read it. He says, She has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before or in front of God. Now, the purpose of the marriage covenant comes back to the reason why God created marriage. One of the primary reasons of marriage is to display the gospel, the unbreakable covenant that's available to us in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, all right, and I just want to read this to you. Just listen as I read it. Hebrews chapter 10 says, by one chapter 10, verse 14 and following, because by one sacrifice he, God, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, this is a covenant, a new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will rem remember no more. Verse 18, and where there, these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. 
for sin, excuse me, no longer any sacrifice for sin. Listen, marriage is, is to be this paintbrush that paints a beautiful picture and display of God's redemptive love through to us in Jesus Christ. That's what marriage is to be. It's to, and, and thank God that his, covenant, his, his relationship with us is not a contract. It's not a contract. It's a covenant unbreakable love. Romans 8, right? There's nothing that can separate us, those who are in Christ, from the love of Jesus. It's an unbreakable, uh, permanent forgiveness kind of relationship that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. And that's what marriage is display, is to display. And Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 5. The covenant of marriage, and just to use another analogy or metaphor, is to be a road map. When people look at our marriages and we call ourselves Christians, people who are married and, and following Christ, people that look at your marriage, they ultimately when they look at, their, at your marriage, they, they should, it should lead them to the destination of God's incredible, permanent, forgiving, unbreakable love that's available to them in Christ. You should live your marriage in such a way, Christian, that it demands a gospel explanation. That people go, how, 21 years, Mark and Andrea, how in the world? How in the world did you do it? We didn't. Let us tell you, apart from the forgiveness of Christ that we've received, only through Him. But, and, and that forgiveness is also available to you. So the covenant of marriage is to be a display of God's covenant love available to us in Jesus Christ. Finally, fourth observation. Marriage is about fulfilling God's mission, not finding your identity. Marriage is about fulfilling God's mission, not finding your identity. Going back to the passage in Matthew 19, and and Jesus quotes here, and he, he says, For this reason, all right, that speaks of purpose, it speaks of mission. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, the picture of two oxen being yoked together. Right? They're being yoked together because they've been given a mission. They've been given a purpose. And God has brought them together to accomplish that purpose. All right? Each of the ox has their own identity. They're an ox. All right? They're an ox. They've received their identity. Now they've been brought together not to focus on themselves, but to look ahead and say, how do we accomplish this purpose that God has given to us, this mission that God has given to us? We've already talked that one of the purposes is procreation, be fruitful, increase and, multi- and multiply. Uh, the other purpose would include partnership and mission, right? God looked at Adam and he said, listen, you need to take care of this place. The earth is a big place. And so he brings Eve along to help him fulfill the purpose and the mission that God has called him to. Another purpose, obviously, is, as we talked about, is the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus doesn't have multiple brides. He has one bride. It's one man, one woman. And John Comer says this in his book, Loveology. He says, marriage is a means to an end. It exists for something larger than itself. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse on itself. It will collapse on itself. I want to read this next quote from Francis Chan from their book, um, You and Me Forever. It says, many people will tell you to focus on your marriage, to focus on each other, but we discovered that focusing on God's mission made our marriage amazing. This caused us to experience Jesus deeply and what could be better. Oftentimes when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling or marriage counseling, what, you know, I'll just draw the triangle and maybe this might be familiar for some of you. Right, if you have Jesus at the top, you have the husband here, you have the wife here, 
right? If you're each pursuing Jesus, it's just going to increase the intimacy. And I'm not just talking physical, sexual intimacy here, guys, okay? But it's going to increase the intimacy, all right, that union that you have with one another as you're each pursuing Jesus. What often happens, though, is you get one going this way, and the other one's not going anywhere. And then you got this big gap, right? When, so the point is each of you, the husband and wife, each need to pursuing be pursuing Jesus, center your life around Jesus. And what will happen is, if you're centering your life personally around Jesus as husband or wife, your marriage will become a priority because marriage is a priority to Jesus. Okay, marriage is not your mission, Jesus is your mission. But if Jesus is your mission, your marriage will become a priority. The problem is, in many marriages, a lot of times we're looking to our spouse to fulfill something that only Jesus can provide. And we struggle there. All right, and it's why we need the gospel, because we need the gospel in my own life, all right, to continually, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. And Andrea needs the gospel in her life, because when I continually am selfish, she's able to say, because of Jesus and how he forgives me, I can forgive Mark. I can forgive him. It's, we always need the gospel. And what I see, though, in, in over 20-some years of this is many newer or young married couples, their marriage becomes an idol. They make their marriage an idol, right, where they're all into each other. And, again, it's, how can that be a bad thing, right? But they, they've just kind of totally checked out of being with the church. They've checked out of Jesus. And, you know, I remember sitting down with a buddy of mine over coffee. This was a few years ago. And he's like, man, we just can't get connected to the church. We can't connect the body and all this to the church. And, and we're not sure and, and whatever. And, and, I'm like, and he's telling me about their relationship. But, and we're struggling. And I'm like, man, I, I'll be honest with you. I think you've made your marriage an idol. You've made your, and you've made, you're so focused on each other that you've left Jesus out of the equation. Or many couples, right, their children become their mission. It all beca- it becomes about the kids. So everything becomes about the children. Then the children get older and they leave. And then what happens? They don't know how to, they have zero relationship. Because they, they didn't know, they never had any relationship when the kids were, were, were there. Your marriage must be pri- your priority, but it's not your mission. And a godly marriage is a byproduct of a husband and wife whose identity is in Jesus. I'm going to ask Andrea to come. I asked her to just share a little bit of just in our own relationship um, what this, how we've kind of navigated this as far as Jesus being the center and Jesus being on, our mi- on mission together. Um, and so I'm going to just kind of have her share just a few minutes. And then when she's done, give you some time to kind of talk a little bit about this at your tables. Um. <clears throat> It's always, this is not an easy place to be because I very much, again, and I've said this before, I don't want you to think that we're up here going, oh, we've done it all perfectly, we do this perfectly, and wow, you know, please understand, this is constantly a work in progress, um, and it continues to be Jesus and what he's doing in us and through our many failures, but um, of course, it all starts... um, with the personal relationship that we each have with Christ. And it is true that the more I'm focusing on what Jesus um, is doing in me and what he's created me to do, and that is to love him first and then to love others, that I was not made to just live out my days for myself. I was created for a purpose, and that is to glorify him and bring him glory. And, of course, that includes other people and 
pointing others to him and how I can do that. And as Mark has done that himself, again, spending time in the Word, seeing that that was the mission God created him for, what's so cool is we know that God brought us together because he believed that us together could bring him more glory together than separately. And we have seen God use that in our lives in, in so many ways, but what I'm trying to say, too, is that when we are both desiring that and we are both trying to do and be what God has created us to be, then it really creates a little less conflict. Like, for example, there are times when Mark has been called out, you know, in the evening or somebody needs him or he gets, a, you know, a, an email, I really need to meet with you for coffee or whatever. When he's gone, it, instead of going, oh, not here again and you know you know I'm here alone with the kids again or whatever my heart beats the same because I'm like yes this person needs Mark and and Mark has an opportunity to share Christ with them or to encourage them in the Lord and so it makes it our, our hearts beat the same and same with me there have been times when um, right now, we're homeschooling, so there have been times when someone has needed to talk or someone has needed me, and thankfully, because of the way Mark's job is, he feels like, okay, this is where I can take this over so that you can go, and you can go and be with this person. Instead of going, ugh, I've got a thousand and one things to do, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're in this together, and we want to meet the needs of others. We want to be used of Christ. Um, as you know, we've been to Ireland. We've come back. Um, a lot of things that would have been very difficult if I had been like, well, wait a minute. What about my life? What about my plan? And, you know, but it's trying together to do what God wants us to do together as a team. Um, that's how it's kind of played out. Another thing is when we even bought a house together, we were like, God, where do you want us to be? Because wherever that is, you're going to use that as a mission field. And, and this isn't about Mark being a pastor. This is about us being God's people. And how can you use us wherever we are? And so we prayed about that. God, wherever you want us to buy a house, we know wherever that is, there are people around that you want us to reach. And that's why you want us to buy a house. So it's just using every opportunity, even as a couple, to um, bring glory to him and to reach others. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but yeah. I hope I'm... Yeah, and, and, and I think if you haven't had those conversations in, in relationship, you need to. You know, and, and a lot of times it could be wrapped... We have couples that host living community gatherings or they're leading living community gatherings, and it's just, you, you know, it's amazing what when Jesus and his mission is the focus, what happens is we're talking about how do we serve together? How can we do these things together? And, and, it's, and where Jesus becomes the talk, he becomes the center of our conversations. And again, it, d listen, don't, I mean, don't think that we've got this thing all figured out, okay? I'm a loser, and I mean, I'm so selfish and just, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I have to confess to her, to my kids um, this week, different things, um, and my own selfishness. But part of that is making Jesus the center, too, is confession, and some of you may need to go to your spouse later today and you need to just apologize. And you need, because you've, you've hurt them. You're not, you haven't been forgiving. And so 
the point of this is Jesus has brought a couple together, husband and wife, for a purpose, for a mission. And what is that mission? And you need to talk about that. How are you as a couple accomplishing what God has called you to do as disciples of Jesus? As disciples of Jesus. Where you, regard, you know, your work is not your mission. Your work is a means to an end. Whatever your job is, it's a means to an end. It's to help you accomplish the mission that God has called you to do. Same with marriage. Your marriage is a means to an end to help you together to accomplish God's purposes. At your table, here's what I want you to discuss. I'm going to ask the band to, to come up and play. But we're going to wrap up here. And what I want you to discuss is this. How different might marriages look if couples really lived in a way where they were focused on God's mission and not finding their identity? Talk about that. How might marriages look differently if couples really lived to fulfill God's mission rather than on trying to find their own identity, their approval, whatever it might be. So take a couple minutes to talk about that. You know, you know, I, I understand that some of the things that we've shared this morning can be very difficult to receive and maybe you're coming into a situation and looking at your marriage and you're going, man, it's just a struggle right now. But where's the hope, right? Where's the hope? You know, I hope you're seeing that the hope lies in the gospel, lies in the person of Jesus. And Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Our hope for brokenness, whether that brokenness be in marriage, whether that brokenness be personally, lies in the person of Jesus. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song, but I want you to be thinking through these couple questions. As you reflect on Jesus' teaching on marriage this morning, what's he saying to you? You have note cards there. What's, what's he saying to you personally? And then maybe in light of what he's saying to you, what do you need to do in response to that? What do you need to do in response to that? And if you're here and you're struggling, you're struggling with particular sin, you're struggling in your marriage, after we're done singing, I'm going to ask Andrew to come up and we're just going to hang out here, maybe Dave and Autumn as well, just for a few minutes. And, and if you need to talk, you need somebody to pray with you, we want to be that for you. But just take the next couple minutes to just think through, what's Jesus saying to you as it relates to marriage originally from the Creator, not culture? Marriage is, is male and female. Marriage is covenant, not contract. Marriage is about filling his mission, not finding your identity. What's he saying to you this morning? And then what do you need to do in response to that? Just take a couple minutes to think on that. Maybe spend this quiet time in prayer, but reflect on it. Maybe feel free to write that out on a note card if you like.